Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Bovey and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. Hello to all our listeners, wherever you are on Wall Street or on Main Street. And this podcast has listeners we know on both sides from the reaction to our first episode last week. Welcome to episode two of Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne, both, as they say, are Wall Street veterans. Dick is Chief Financial Strategist at Audion Capital Group, and Matt is the co-founder and managing partner at Audion. Audion Capital Conversations is about all things money and markets, and we will talk specifically about money on this episode, tapping into the thought-provoking research papers and commentary of Dick Beauvais. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Dick and Matt, welcome to this episode. This is episode two. It's great. Yeah, I know. It's fun. Yeah, it's fun. And we're getting a lot of ideas exchanged. It was a rough January. You know, we just closed it out on Wall Street and we'll see where we're headed. I think there was some hope certainly early this week. Do you think February is going to be going to be a good month? Your thoughts? Well, I think that uh, basically uh, January was a shock in the sense that uh, a shock to Wall Street in the sense that, you know, uh, Mr. Powell came out with some fairly strong comments concerning inflation. But I think by the end of the month of January, it was understood that he was just talking. He wasn't doing anything. He hasn't done a thing to uh, fight inflation. I mean, he hasn't uh, caused any raise in interest rates. Uh, even though people are out at four, five, six, seven uh, rate increases this year, now they're starting to cut back. Uh, secondly, he's done nothing to shrink the balance sheet. He's done nothing to slow the growth in money supply. All he's done is what they used to call many years ago, jawbone. He's jawboning like hell to try and convince people that the Fed is interested in slowing inflation, but he's doing nothing to slow it. And I think the market is picking up on that, which is why we had two very strong days uh, in the last, you know, earlier this week. Well, you referred to the Fed push last week, Matt. Uh, this, that's what's at play here, correct? Right? I mean, it's all about confidence and the sorcerer at the Federal Reserve being able to turn things around that Powell is some kind of a financial magician. I mean, I agree with what Dick just said. I there is It's clear that he feels like he has to convince the market he has this thing under control he used the word transitory for what eight nine months then retired it in september when you know consistently inflation keeps going up month on month at an accelerate not an accelerating pace but it keeps going up higher every print is higher than the previous month and he's trying to convince the market that he has under control i agree with dick that He's talking, not acting. And if I were to put myself in his position, I think that he's hoping we have some lower inflation prints, um, some lower CPI numbers, so that he is not so squeezed by the the forces of the market that he has to raise rates, because I don't think that they can actually afford to raise rates too much. And this is part of the, the spin cycle, which is we're going to raise rates a lot. We're going to do it early and often. And you better get ready. And the belief is, or the hope, I guess, is maybe the, the better word, that the expectation that higher rates are coming will actually preempt the need to actually raise rates. The same way when they announced the corporate bond buying program, that was all they had to do was announce that they were going to buy corporate bonds. And it brought the market in line. And then they went ahead and did it just to prove that they could, but they didn't really actually need to intervene 
because they said they could and they said they would. And I think they're hoping that they can get inflation under control by words, not actions, because the actions are actually going to cause a, a big problem to the structural deficit in the in the country because as the the government starts refinancing bonds if interest rates go keep going up eventually i mean we're already at a spot where the 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 federal budget is consumed by more than 100% of um interest payments if you include uh, entitlement payments which kind of are interest payments because they actually are inflationary themselves in the sense that in, um entitlement programs are linked to the to the core cpi so I don't think they have a lot of room to maneuver given the structural deficit of the country, because eventually if they raise rates, then they're going to have to raise purchases from the treasury to keep things in balance and it's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So their best opportunity to control this in the get-go is to talk, not act, in my opinion. We're talking about servicing the debt could be problematic if there are too many interest rate rises. That's what I think. I mean, mathematically, you, you talk about $21 trillion of debt on the balance and and that has to come from the treasury if you're talking five percent rates that's a trillion dollars a year if you're talking seven percent rates you know it's it's getting to the point where we have a government that brings in roughly four trillion in taxes and spends already i think it's close to four and a half trillion on entitlements and interest and then and defense and then the rest is is where the budget where the active action is but if you raise rates then a substantial portion of the budget is going to go to funding the interest, which they can't afford to do because then they're going to have to do more QE. Well, they won't call it QE, but they're going to, the Fed's going to have to purchase more of the of the treasury issuances just to keep the government afloat. So he, he's in a real tight bind, and I think he's trying to talk his way out of it. Job owning is a good word. But we hear a lot of pundits on Wall Street talking about six, seven rate increases this year, never ending. And into next year, the market is expecting some changes. Yeah, the market is definitely expecting changes, uh, but the question is whether it's going to happen or not, because Matt is exactly correct in my view, in that, um, you know, this guy doesn't know what to do right now. He is in a box. He doesn't, he, he doesn't have the ability to really raise interest rates without causing real distress for the federal government. And yet, if he doesn't raise interest rates, I think that inflation will continue to rise so he's he's sitting there, I think, every night praying uh, beside <laughs> his bed, arguing. I think he with, bought with cycles around his island lake. Yeah, I, but, I heard him on TV one night. Yeah, but I think uh, <laughs> it, it's you know, please, Lord, do not let this inflation get out of control. Uh, and I think he's waiting. He's waiting to see, as Matt said, he's waiting to see if the inflation rate is going to come down. But you know, I th- I think the situation is far more problematic than 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 simply higher rates are going to cause d- dismay for the government. I think that the Federal Reserve has no clue as to what the money supply of the United States is. Yeah, well, I'm going to ask you to hold your thought again here, Dick, because that's what specifically what we're going to talk about in in just a wee moment. The money, which is one of the core themes of this podcast. And I'd like to begin by quoting something you recently wrote. It's fast. All your writings, your thoughts, your studies, everything you say fascinates a lot of people, including your host here, as they say, thought provoking. Here's you recently. One reason that money is no longer discussed is because no one really knows what it is in today's financial world. The Federal Reserve produces a much delayed number that only views money in its simplest form. This agency sets monetary policy, but does not know what the true money supply is. Explain that to me. Okay, well, we know that uh, back in the 1970s, when uh, Milton Friedman was riding the rails and uh, people believed, or the Fed believed that monetary policy was critical, that we had a variety of types of money. We had M0, which is cash, we had M1A, M1B, M2, M3, L, MZM, each one using different tools, if you will, to try and determine what the actual money supply is, okay? We've pretty much wiped all that stuff away, and we're down to M1 and M2. Now, if you take a look at the definitions of M2, and I'll just give you two quick ones. Um, If you have $50,000 in a bank, that's money. If you take that $50,000 out of the bank and put it into an institutional money market fund, 
It's not money. It's not counted as money. So you lose $50,000 of the money supply if you move the money from a bank to an institutional money market fund. If you have $5,000 in a bank CD, that's money. If you have $105,000 in a bank CD, that's not money. So, so the net effect is, you know, they, they've created this very narrow definition based upon what they can calculate. Again, if you go back to the prior periods, you know, commercial paper was looked at as being money. Euro dollars was looked at as being money. Uh, all the money in money market mutual funds, institutional money market mutual funds was money. We don't consider any of that money anymore, although the money is still there. It still exists, but it's not money because the Fed says it's not money. And if you go, you know, a, a little bit further, you know, we've had such massive technological innovation all through the financial industry that we are now able to create, you know, digital money. And that digital money could be Bitcoin or it could be Ethereum. But, you know, if, if that money, Bitcoin, not so much, but Ethereum, if you can use it to affect transactions, it's money. But the Fed can't calculate it, doesn't know what it is. All right. Uh, and we, we can go further because, you know, if you look into the swaps market, when you create uh, notional values, uh, you know, on an interest rate swap, that's money. And that's money that's, that's changing hands between two entities. So, you know, the Fed, I think, would love to be able to tell you what the amounts are for each one of these different concepts, but they don't, they don't have a source of information because the banks provide them with the information about deposits and they have the information about true raw cash. But all the other stuff is not, if you will, monitored by the Fed and therefore they don't know what the money supply is. The entity in the United States, which is creating monetary policy, does not know what the money supply is. And I think that's, I think that's really, really dangerous. One question, Dick. You said $5,000 in a CD is money, but $105,000 is not. Can you explain to me why the distinction? Uh, no, I cannot. It's a Fed distinction. In other words, the Fed does not count money over 100. It used to count CDs over $100,000 as money, right? And in the latest definition, which came out uh, a few months back, I think uh, maybe March or April, uh, they knocked that off. Uh, they, they, they don't count it. In other words, it, it used to be a, a normal part of M3. And M3, you know, was, was dropped a few years ago because they couldn't calculate, you know, what, what they call big ticket, you know, deposits are. Uh, and and if I read the the, the uh, data correctly, uh, they've now dropped it out of M two also. So going back to your your most recent piece where you you talked about the money supply, your thesis was or is that the idea being that QE is money printing and is causing inflation. And I think my dispute with that is we've been doing QE for almost twelve years now, and we've only seen inflation, which I think is much more linked to fiscal stimulus because QE, to the extent that it is inflation, is financial asset inflation. And that's where we've seen the stock market interest rates drop, stock market rise, Bitcoin come out of nowhere and become a more than a trillion dollar asset class. I mean, this is, this is a direct result of financial asset inflation. And the consumer inflation to me seems to be much more correlated, one, as we talked about last week, supply chain, but also these direct checks to consumers. And the idea being that Financial asset inflation benefits a population that, by and large, isn't rushing out to spend when they get new money. They rush out to invest. And consumer inflation is driven by demand from excess demand from excess cash, which is when you have fiscal checks going out to everyone in the country and they rush to spend it. And that might actually be part of the supply chain crisis because people are buying more than they used to. But with fiscal ending, BBB you know, is dead. Um, the 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 infrastructure bill really is not that much money and it's spread out over so much Although time. I, let me stop you there, Matt. There are attempts to revive it in a smaller form. So that'll be kind of interesting if they get that through Congress before the November elections. Maybe, but I'm just saying that the, the free money is pretty much gone with 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 the Democrats not having able to get um their party aligned to the Republicans against it. So I think we when you say money, I agree definitionally with what you're saying, but it seems to me that QE 
has a different cause and effect in a, in a big way than fiscal stimulus and the fiscal stimulus is gone at least for now, it seems. And the, I, I, you know, I'll go back to my prior point that um, I think inflation is going to dissipate as we go through the year. But when you're defining money, do you count QE as, as money printing in yeah, the absolutely. conventional sense? Yeah. Yes, Matt. Absolutely. I mean, I think that when you had QE one, two, and three, uh, you had a banking system that was in total disarray. You had uh, shrinking loans within the banking system. You had, uh, you know, deposit growth, which was not very strong. You had uh, the banks being forced to uh, divert money away from the economy into uh, the purchase of government securities and into the Federal Reserve. Uh, and you had this tremendous demand upon the banking system to uh, increase its uh, capital significantly, not, 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 not in a minor fashion. So, you know, the Fed is not the only entity that creates money in our, our economy. Uh, what, I what I described to you is how they count money, but banks create money. In other words, if, you, you know, if a bank makes a loan, they, they don't generally take that money out of some deposit somewhere. They create the deposit out of nothing. In other words, if I borrow, uh, you know, $100,000, you know, to, uh, you know, on a mortgage, you know, the bank may take the money from deposits, or more likely, it simply creates the deposits. And therefore, 83% of all the money that the Fed counts in the United States is bank deposits. So if the banking system, you know, you know, it, it, coming out of the, the Great Recession, or through the Great Recession, did not have bank if you will, money creation, you know, you weren't getting the full impact of the QEs in terms of, you know, impacting, you know, inflation. That's that's no longer the case. What what we're now seeing is that the banks are, are overwhelmed with a, a huge amount of deposits, right? I think uh, it's 13 trillion or 14 trillion dollars in deposits at the present time. And, you know, they have for the last couple of years been putting those deposits into government bonds in the Federal Reserve again, but they're not doing it anymore. The Federal Reserve uh, is now losing uh, the deposits that the banks were previously putting in, and the banks are now making loans. In the fourth quarter, which you pointed out last week, it was all inventory building. It wasn't anything but inventory building. Well, who's funding that inventory? The banks are. And how are they doing it? They're printing money. They're not They're not decreasing the size of their uh, their uh, security holdings. They're not decreasing, well, some of them are decreasing the cash that they're holding, but basically they are just printing money to give to companies to build inventories. And that's where you get the inflation coming in. I have a technical question, Dick. Does the fractional banking system apply today the way we understood it in the past? Banks kept 10% of their deposits in reserve and then multiplied it for every 10 in reserve. They could lend out $100. Is it that simple anymore? No, it doesn't exist anymore. In other words, uh, the, the Federal Reserve has pretty much eliminated almost every, in fact, it could be every, I'm not sure on that, but almost every uh, reserve requirement that banks had uh, previously uh, is gone. They don't have any reserve requirements. Uh, and, you know, if they did say put 10% in, you know, that would be way below what I think they're putting in at the present time. So, no, there, there is no reserve system, uh, you know, in the, in the U.S. any longer, as far as I understand it. Are you saying that the banks can keep lending out money endlessly? Is there no, there's no limits to it? There's, there's got to be a limit to what they can loan. Yeah, the limit is their capital ratio. In other words, the what, the what the government does is it sets a capital requirement, you know, 4%, you know, basically for the industry, and then they put buffers on top of that. You know, and if you get to a, a big bank like, uh, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase, it'll be more than double that um, in terms of the buffers. So, you know, in theory, they can keep, you know, in theory, they can keep printing uh, money by making loans, but ultimately they're held by that capital ratio requirement, which stops them from growing the size of their balance sheets. I mean, I'm, I'm listening to Dick and I feel like he's proving or at least agreeing with me that if inflation is caused by, I know this is going back to last week, by inventory building, then when inventory building is, is 
has to be depleted through consume consumers buying it, won't that dissipate the price inflation that we've been seeing? When the corporations reduce their inventory building, they pay back their loans, then they're shrinking the money supply. And therefore, uh, that that would be, uh, you know, a negative influence on inflation. But if the economy is going to continue to grow, uh, and what we're seeing is, for example, consumers, uh, you know, a year ago were increasing their credit card debt by about 5%. They're now increasing it by 9%. Uh, corporations were increasing their debt. I'm sorry, they were decreasing their debt by about 12 to 14%. They're now increasing it by, uh, you know, four, four to, well, three to four percent. So what we're seeing is that uh, money creation through the banking system is is accelerating, not decelerating. And the Federal Reserve has not adjusted, as we said before, has not adjusted the creation of money. So money supply is growing. The, the other thing I've noticed um, is I run these regressions on money versus inflation to, to see if, in fact, there is, you know, you know, you can't keep saying money creates inflation if you can't prove it. What it shows is that uh, with a two-year lag, there is a very significant, there is a very, uh, the 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 R square is ninety-one uh, percent, you know, uh, in terms of uh, inflation following uh, money supply growth. If you do it over a five-year period, there is uh, a ninety-five percent R square, uh, which means that, uh, you know, it's just a mathematical term, but it just means that you put the money out there, that money gets into the economy, that's going to drive prices. And again, well, the, the implication though is so if you go over a five-year time horizon, and you get higher R squared than. In theory, if the two-year time horizon has a lower correlation, does that mean that the prior three-year period had a much higher correlation? And if that's the case, I feel like there's something I'm missing in the sense that we inflation is relatively new, like the last 12 months above 2%. And again, in the last 18 to 24 months is when we've done fiscal money printing. I, I feel like if you just look at the data, the actual data that is there is that when money goes into call it the bottom half of the, the income spectrum, the money gets spent and it causes inflation. When the money is there and it goes through QE to the financial system, you have financial asset inflation, which is why you have record stock markets and record low interest rates. I I, I mean, you might have a correlation in an R squared, and I'm not trying to dispute because I know statistics. I know R squared is clearly a mathematical calculation, but it sure feels like something is missing in that if it's a higher if a higher R squared is correlated with is it requires a longer time period to get because normally the R squared would go lower with a longer time period on any correlation causation measurement. Yeah, but in early um, a year ago, the growth in money was 26% year over year. M2 is growing at 26% year over year. I can go back to 1950s and I can never, I cannot find a number anywhere close to 26% growth in the money supply. So if there's a two-year lag between when that money is created, and by the way, it, it had an immediate explosive impact on the financial markets, which is where the money went. But if I go, if I use the two-year lag, uh, it would suggest that inflation will pick up meaningfully. Now, money supply is I apologize. Money supply is, is now growing at twelve and a half to thirteen percent year over year, which is still extraordinarily uh, rich. So, so your argument here, Dick, is also it's the, the, the massive and growth in the money supply explains a lot of this inflationary pressure. But yeah, that's what that's my theory. Well, it's not my theory. That's what if you pick up any uh, book on inflation. You know, anybody who studied Weimar Germany or Venezuela today or Zimbabwe, that's their theory. Before Matt picks you up on that, could we head in that direction, like Weimar Germany and Argentina? Do you believe that seriously, Dick? Well, you know, we are heading in that direction. The question is, are we going to stop? And that's why I, I mentioned a little while ago that the Fed has got to do more than talk. They just can't sit, get up there, pray and talk. They've got to do something. And I, my belief- What is, is that doing something? You, you, is it interest rate hikes? It seems to be their answer, their preferred approach. Yeah, but well, I'm, I'm, I'm a money guy, right? So I believe that you shrink the balance sheet of the Fed. If you shrink the balance sheet of the Fed, then you're not producing money. In other words, uh, if we take it away from percentages and say, okay, 
how much money did we create? Well, we created $6 trillion in the last two years. That's a third increase in the size of the money of the United States from where it was when they started doing this. That $6 trillion, you know, unfortunately, mostly never got to the economy. It mostly went into the financial instruments and, and the market. So you saw $11 trillion worth of mergers last year. You saw $3.4 trillion worth of uh, high-grade bonds or investment-grade bonds being purchased or issued last year, a trillion dollars worth of high-yield bonds that were issued last year. I mean, th that money did something. And if you believe that what it did was drive prices, then you know if you want to stop driving prices, stop printing the money. And if you want to do that, shrink the Fed balance sheet. We, we started this off with you explaining how the Fed has no real ability to measure the money supply and the fact that the definitions have been changed and they've been slowly pulling them back and not measuring them or being incapable of measuring them. And, and then we get to a point where we're saying M2 grew by 26%, except we use the word money supply grew by 26%. And there's a 91% correlation with money supply and inflation, which would imply we should be at a 21% inflationary environment or 24, 25% inflationary environment, if there's 91% correlation. But going back to the first point, if we can't measure the money supply, then we're using M2 as a proxy, as, a, as our best guess. We're sticking our finger up in the air and we're trying to guess which way the wind is blowing. And it might be blowing north, but maybe it's northeast east, or maybe it's northeast, but we're not really sure because the sun, you know, is in a different spot. And and we're just, you know, we're kind of saying, well, we know it's going that direction. We know the money supply is growing, but saying it's growing at 26%, there's 91% correlation to inflation. Seems like we're off somewhere. Is it, is it possible that because we're not measuring the true money supply, that when M2, as it's measured, grows by 26% year on year, what we're actually doing is siphoning money from different pockets that aren't being measured into the pocket that is being measured and misinterpreting the results because we did print cash dollars to consumers and it grew the money supply by measured by M2 by 26%, but inflation as measured is only up 7%. And I'm still deep in the camp that I think it's going to go down, not up, but I'd love to hear your answer on that. Well, first off, you know, obviously if I'm saying that we don't know what the money supply is, I'm not about to tell you that, that what you're suggesting did not happen, right? Because if we did know what the money supply was, we would be able to determine whether money was being siphoned from, you know, bucket A into bucket B or bucket C or bucket D. But we don't know. We don't have a clue. All right. So your, your indication, your your statement that you know we've got our finger in the air trying to figure out where the wind is blowing is true because that's exactly what's happening. Since we don't know what the money supply is, and since we don't know how to calculate it, we I can't say definitively, uh, you know, that the growth was 26% or 2% or, you know, 50%. Um, the other thing that, you know, I think is important is that they're, they're redefining the CPI again. Uh, and this time they're adding in what might be a more valid uh, indicator of uh, what, um, what um, you know, automobile prices are. But, you know, they're still not going to pick it up because, uh, and, and I, I've talked about this and hopefully we'll talk about it more next week. One of my associates, you know, um, not, not working for Odeon, you know, basically um, rented an apartment last May. The rent was $1,500 a month. And all of a sudden, the, the apartment complex kept saying that there were cost increases to the apartment complex. So all of a sudden, the base rate went up 150 bucks. Then the apartment complex come back and said, well, you know, you using a mailbox, that's our mailbox, you got to pay 20 bucks for that. And then they increased the price to 29. Then they said, you know, you, you're taking trash and throwing it in our dumpsters. You know, we're going to take the trash and throw it in the dumpsters, even though it's a block away from your apartment. And we're going to charge you 20 bucks a month for that. And then they raised that to 50 bucks a month. Then they said, well, you know, there's lights in all the hallways and we have lights in the par in the parking spaces. And, you know, you, you, you got to pay for that, you know, because, you know, we're providing that service. So you got to pay for that. And that added another 50 bucks to the rent. So all of a sudden, what was $1,400 in rent or $1,500, whatever it was, is now $1,900. 
that that doesn't show up in the inflation figures. It doesn't show up anywhere because you know the apartment complex is charging for a new service that never existed before. You know, and they're charging. You know, they're increasing the rates that they're charging for that. Then you know we can talk, as I say in some later point, but they're taking that money and going out and, and buying more houses to rent. So they can throw more fees on in the same fashion. It's not in the inflation figures, and housing prices are going up 22 percent year over year. In rental, you know, uh, the the Harvard people who do a great job in this subject, the rental uh, figures are going up somewhere around 30 percent per year. So again, I don't know whether that is tied to the money supply figure or not. All I know is that prices are moving up extraordinarily rapidly. And none of the price increases I just mentioned to you are related to supply side difficulties. Dick, housing prices are not factored into inflation. They used to be in the past, right? They're not put no, into the no. CPI. Because if you look at housing costs, price of lumber, supply, labor, um, supply chain shorts, that's been pushing up the raw materials. So I don't understand why it's never factored in or considered. Well, I, I don't either, and most people don't. But they, what they what they do when they calculate the CPI is they take an implied rental cost of new housing, and right away you run into a problem there because interest rates went down. So the implied rental cost is not going up because the interest rates are going down. Uh, now, at some point, they're going to have to fix that. They can't they can't ignore the biggest single cost of most American households, uh, which is the cost of where they live in, in the CPI and then claim it's a CPI. But it, you, you're absolutely right. Housing prices are not in the CPI. I take a little bit of exception with, with that answer in the sense that the owner's equivalent rent, which is the imputed rental cost that they measure, is is probably disconnected from someone who's never been in the housing market going out and renting from the first time and seeing those 20 and 30% price increases. But when you look at CPI overall, what the BLS is trying to measure, and it's not really fair that they're tasked with trying to measure something so broad, is average inflation for the average normal American in the average situation, which is nobody. Nobody's the average consumer. Because you're not buying 0.1 TVs every year. You're not buying 0.14 cars every year. You're buying a car every five or six, seven years. You're buying a TV every 10 years. You're buying a house on average. Most people buy three houses in their lifetime. Um, 70% of the, uh, not 70, I think it's like 62% of homes in America are owned. And most of those people have fixed rate um, mortgages. So imputing the 20% year-on-year increase in housing prices to the overall economy all at once would be drastically overstating inflation because most families don't actually have housing inflation. Most families have housing disinflation because they're paying last year's mortgage with this year's um, new cheaper dollar. So, so you know, the BLS is trying to come up with an average, which isn't fair. It's not real because if you're a family that has you know, two people paying excessive medical bills, and those medical bills are going up 10% every year, and you have two kids in college, and those are going up 10% every year, and you're buying a car every year, and that's going up 10% every year, your personal inflation is really high. Yeah. But if you're on living in your own home, and you don't have a mortgage, or you're paying a fixed rate mortgage, and you're living by yourself, you probably have almost 0% inflation, except for your car and maybe your food, and that might represent 5% of your overall wallet. So your overall inflation is 50 basis points. So Trying to trying to take one piece of the BLS and say, oh, the CPI number is rigged and it's wrong because they're not measuring it is, I think, a little bit unfair in the sense that what they're trying to define is what the overall cost of the overall economy and how much that particular component is going to the overall share of inflation. And when last week when we were talking about how rental cars and used cars are accounting for an excessive amount, a lot of it is because of the supply chain shortages in new cars. You know, the used cars are stealing inventory from new cars because new cars aren't being developed because they can't get their chips from Taiwan fast enough. So a lot of these pieces come together and, it, and it's quick. It's easy to sit and say, oh, well, the inflation's wrong because housing's 30% and clearly, it, you know, the CPI is not reflecting it. But ratio to ratio to ratio to the average person, it only impacts a small number of people. Right now we have, I think, 220,000 houses for sale in America which is the lowest number in like 18 years that how inventory has been that low. And so those people who are having forced to go out and buy in this market are going to pay, you know, what, 30, 40% over last year's guy. 
but that's only 220 percent 220,000 220,000 houses out of you know an inventory of 100 million houses which aren't taking that year-on-year price increase sorry matt do you think the interest rate rises will cool the housing market of course no. so if they raise interest rates significantly it's going to have a, have a massively negative impact but i don't know that it's going to actually increase the housing supply which to me is where the, the the price increases are coming from it's coming from shortage of inventory not from money printing gone rampant and going back to the the money supply issue when when we say money grew last year 26 percent we expect m2 to grow 13 percent this year if we don't know if it's where it's siphoning off from or net or you know where it's siphoning it's possible that we're sitting here with money supply decreasing while we're measuring m2 increasing and we're gonna we're gonna misread where inflation is going based on that correlation between inflation and M2 if we're not measuring where the, the money is escaping the system. A quick answer to that, Dick, and then we're going to pivot here a little bit. Okay, well, basically, you're correct that uh, the CPI does not measure prices of specific products. What they measure is what they think the average American family is buying. So if we if we were worried about housing prices not being correctly uh, handled by the CPI since they're not in there, we don't have to worry about it. Uh, but what you might look at is the, what they call a beef to steak uh, comparison, which is that if the price of steak is going up very rapidly, essentially the CPI drops the rating on steak and replaces it with hamburger under the theory that the average family is not going to buy steak, they're going to buy hamburger. So, you know, we've only mentioned one aspect of why the CPI is not accurately measuring inflation. There, there are multiple other aspects. Uh, and, and I would also say that, you know, find a cell phone that only allows you to make telephone calls. You can't find one, right? Yeah. Uh, every time you buy a cell phone, you have to pay for all of these other services, similar to the rental apartment. You have to pay for all these other services. And the CPI, you know, deducts you know, your cost of buying that cell phone by the services that you purchased. In other words, if you were buying a cell phone that, that only made telephone calls and you it cost a hundred bucks and you're buying a cell phone today, you can't find one that only makes telephone calls. So, you know, this, the, 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 the people who calculate the inflation numbers say, wait a minute, um, you do whatever else you do with that, that cell phone. The net effect is they subtract from the price that you paid for the cell phone, all the things that you could do, like in my case, you would never do. So the point is, there, there, it's it's very difficult to calculate inflation, but the calculations we're getting is showing that it is going up. We're going to take a little turn here. Uh, we'll look at the concept of money today versus, say, a generation ago or 50 years ago. But just want to remind listeners, you're listening to the Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein. And I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. So the what is the definition of money? It used to be, as Matt reminded us last week, a, a medium of exchange, a store of value, a unit of account, and it had intrinsic value. Is it, Does that apply anymore? Not really. I mean, basically, um, it's still used for the functions that were just mentioned. But um, I don't know, a few years ago, uh, my granddaughter asked me to give a, uh, a talk to her uh, economics class. So I went in there and I gave her, uh, I don't know, $61 bills. And I said, hand out one $1 bill to each person in, in the class, which she did. And then I asked her to, um, I, I asked the class to read what it said on that dollar bill. And it says it's a Federal Reserve note. And I then asked them to explain what does that mean? It's a Federal Reserve note. And nobody had a clue because it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. There is nothing behind that dollar bill. Nothing. What is behind the dollar bill supposedly is the productive capability of the United States economy and the willingness of the United States to accept, you know, those dollar bills for tax payments, right? But basically, um, th there is no there is no intrinsic value behind that dollar bill. The dollar bill is used because everybody is willing to use it. 
And that means you can substitute it with any other currency or any other thing that you want to if enough people want to use it. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it's, it has the full faith and backing of the U.S. government. That, that means something. It's well, what a does it mean? currency. What does it mean? The full faith and backing of the U.S. government. The U.S. government can't replace all the money out there unless the Fed goes out and prints it. And if the Fed goes out and prints it, you know, you have less than a trillion dollars in the FDIC fund to back, you know, what is six or seven trillion of guaranteed money. If there was a crisis, the FDIC doesn't have the money to to replace if we were to wipe out all of the, uh, if you will, federal deposit insured money. It, it doesn't have that money. It, it's not there. Nobody has it. So what then happens? If if the, the federal government decides that it really is going to back FDIC insurance, and, and, you know, I had a long discussion with J.P. Morgan Chase about this about five years ago and said that there is no FDIC insurance. There is what the banks put in a pool to insure a small amount of money. But if you expect the federal government to go up and, you know, print all this money to back the money that's being lost, you're crazy. They're not going to do it. And so, you know, the debate went on for literally four or five months until finally their economists agreed with me that the federal government is not going to step up and replace all of the money in the bank accounts of the United States that have FDIC insurance on it. So when you say that it's backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, A, I don't think that's true. I mean, it's set in every bank in the, in the world. America says it. And B, the real reason why it's not true is that if the government ever did that, it would destroy the value of the dollar. I'm trying to understand your logic. It's a very interesting thesis. And so all the transactions done throughout the globe, it's the reserve currency. People buy their homes with it. They buy their gas. They buy their cars, their automobiles. You pay your taxes. You file them to Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam issues checks for Social Security. Uh I mean, it's a widely accepted currency. I, I don't understand how that doesn't have some kind of, it's a medium of exchange and some kind of value. I think we're getting caught up too much in semantics in the sense that both things can be true. And the idea is it is a medium of exchange and the intrinsic value is the government will back it, especially in contracts, especially in taxes, especially in in um, exchange of services with contractual dollar amounts to the amount written on the piece of paper or whatever is agreed to amongst the parties. The idea being though, you know, when you say the Fed's not going to step up and fund if the FDIC were called upon all $6 trillion, if all the banks failed at the exact same time in, in one moment in time, well, they could, they could step up and print that money. And then the dollars they print it with will be worth less than the dollars that were lost, but the, the balance of accounts will be made whole. Um, the intrinsic value is that the dollar isn't going to necessarily be linked to the, you know, when we were on the gold standard, it was linked to the gold and now it's linked to the collective perceived value based on the world's collective perceived value based on whether or not you think inflation is real, whether or not you will accept it as a medium exchange. But to the extent that almost every single human on the planet will accept us dollars Mm. shows that it has intrinsic value, The, the level of what they'll exchange for those is different and that could change over time. But the U.S. government could print 16 trillion. They could print 100 trillion. They could do, you know, every every time there's a Republican senator or a Democratic senator that wants to hold up the budget process, you know, you start seeing these papers and and op eds talking about the trillion dollar coin solution. They could just print one trillion dollar coin and deposit it at the Fed or deposit it at the U.S. Treasury, and now we have an extra trillion dollars. So why not print 60 trillion dollar coins or 100 trillion dollar coins? Like. The theory is there that you could do it. It's the practice and the the repercussions that constrains them from doing it. I mean, I, I think that's what's driving this whole concept of the modern monetary theory, that we can go print money, print, print, pay off all our programs, pay down student debt, uh, fund capital programs, save the world. But if we lose our reserve status and the dollar is no longer accepted, then all all bets are off. But to Matt's point, that suggests and implies that it does have intrinsic value. 
Yeah, but again, I'm going to take Matt's words. Um, you know, they can print it and the dollar will be worth less. In other words, I like to value the dollar in loaves of bread. So, you know, if you want to print six trillion, uh, five trillion or whatever number you want to print, and it buys you, uh, you know, one third the number of loaves of bread that you were getting before, you are not getting you are not getting what you put into the bank, or you're not getting uh, the intrinsic value that you believe that currency has at this moment. Currencies have value only because someone's willing to accept them. And they're willing to accept the currencies of countries that have huge trade surpluses, strong, strong economies. Those currencies have intrinsic value, but they lose those intrinsic value. I mean, the, the Portuguese Escudo was the first uh, supposed re reserve currency in the world, followed by the Spanish dollar and followed by, you know, I, I, I don't know each iteration, but up to the pound, up to the dollar. But, you know, if, if the United States thinks it can print a trillion dollar coin or it can print enough money to pay back all of the debt that might be lost in, in you know, the, the, the bank accounts and that that money will still be accepted around the world, I, I think it's 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 fooling itself. Can't do that. Just can't do that. Think of what the inflation rate would be, because if they printed all those dollars, the dollars plunge in value. We import a staggering amount of products. We wouldn't be able to buy cars. We wouldn't be able to buy, you know, television sets. We wouldn't be able to buy a whole bunch of things coming in because those dollars didn't have it. Wouldn't have any value. You would also say that the soaring national debt plays into this radically correct yeah big that's what's driving that's what's driving the creation of money right now in other words the 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 federal debt is generally bought by entities in other words you know i can go to get a savings bond for my kid or i can uh, you know if i'm a corporation i can put a million dollars into buying treasuries but if i don't want to buy them and that's what the problem has been for the last couple of years, then the Fed has to print the money and give it to the Treasury. And that's what caused the money supply growth. And that's what I would argue uh, is going to cause the uh, continuous inflation. That's a great point to bring up again, Dick, that that's driving the money growth. Uh, the Fed's hands are tied. They can't get foreigners to buy our debt. Yeah, I mean, nobody wants to say the dirty word, but ultimately... Uh, you know, President Bush said it, I, no increase in taxes, no increase in taxes, no increase in taxes until he increased taxes. You know, President Reagan did the massive tax cut. And then ultimately, you know, little drips and drabs. Uh, some, some economists say that he increased taxes 16 times in little places after he did the massive tax cut. So um, ultimately, the American people are going to have to pay this debt then they're not going to get away from it. They're going to have to pay it. Do cryptocurrencies, in either of your view, have intrinsic value? We saw how it took a beating with the broader market, and I'm sure it's come back uh, somewhat this week. But where does that all fit in here? If, if, if fiat currencies don't have intrinsic value, then uh, cryptocurrencies have less. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's definitely true. Very true. However, I, I, you know, I, I love this story. You know, I must have been in a in, in a fun move one day, mood one day, because I, I went into what was then the first Union Bank, and I had a meeting with the chief financial officer, and I, I asked him. I said, I have an account at this bank, which I did, and I said, I'd like to see my money. He said, "What are you talking about?" I said, "I want to see my money. Where, where is my money?" You know, is it in the vault? No, not in the vault. Is it being held somewhere else? No, it's not being held somewhere else. Well, where's my money? And then he really, he almost threw me out of his office, right? Because he says, it's in my computer. It's in your computer. It's, a, it's an electronic signal sitting in your computer. And I like he, that story. Yeah, but so the boy, but he really got. He wouldn't have enough space to store all your money. <laughs> I wish that was true. But anyway, the point uh, the point is that uh, the, the money really isn't printed by the Federal Well, that's interesting. You go into the banks today, and a lot of them are legacy banks, and they still have the bank faults there, but there's nothing inside them anymore. Back in the day, there was real money inside and gold, right? 
Well, that's right. Back when the depression occurred, uh, you know, there are many stories of this, but uh, the, the Bank of California, uh, they, there was this massive, you know, lines behind the bank, you know, people wanted their money out. So to stop the run on the bank, they went into the vault, they took all the gold that they had in the vault, they piled it up in the middle of the floor. And they're not the only bank that did this. And then when the people saw that this bank did have all of their money, you know, the, the crowds went away and the bank did not fail and they put the gold back in the vault. You, know, you can't do that anymore. You can't, you know, if people lined up in front of J.P. Morgan Chase, you know, down on uh, Pine Street and said, uh, we want our money, show it to us. They can't do that because they don't have it. It's an electronic signal. So now you go to cryptocurrencies. What the hell are cryptocurrencies? They're electronic signals. Yeah. So what is the differentiation between the two? The differentiation is you can pay taxes with the electronic signals inside J.P. Morgan Chase. You cannot pay taxes with the electronic signals in, in uh, Satoshi's uh, or whatever you want to call them. You can you, you have the U.S. government saying that we're backing, you know, this this currency. There's nobody backing, the, you know, the Bitcoin or Ethereum or XRP, which is the one I own or, or you know, the others. Uh, so, you know, it's only whether people will accept them. That's what gives them value. That's what creates value. Okay. Just side okay. comment of all the cryptocurrencies you chose Ripple. Um, that's not, that's, that's, that's not good. The second part is if, if you're going to try to attribute what the value of the cryptocurrencies are, it's exactly the opposite of what you're saying in that it's not backed by a fiat government, which is prone to issuing, you know, 26%. M2 increases every year because Satoshi or whatever you call him. Some people call him the CIA. Some people call him Satoshi. Um, Who is this guy? Mystery man. He, he, he created a devised a system where there's a limit and the limit's 21 million bitcoins and, and there's never going to be more. So you don't have to worry about Bitcoin inflation um, at least to the extent that you believe in it. But I, I feel like we're dancing back and forth between reality and non-reality when we we throw the these terms around in the sense that like john mentioned um mmt which is you know modern monetary theory which is basically the idea that the government government should print money but not necessarily account for it using treasuries because right now we're we're doing this game of fugazi where the treasury treasury department needs money to spend and they get it from the fed who creates it out of thin air albeit supposedly through the secondary market by buying treasuries um, from banks. But in reality, MMT would basically take away that sleight of hand and just print money. Mm -hmm. And right now we have the benefit of at least seeing how much money is being printed because we see the, the treasury on, you know, on the balance sheet, we know how much us official debt there is. And, and then you can do some calculations and guess how much Medicare and Medicaid and social security adds to it. And then you come up with the number that, you know, some people say it's 80, some people say 120, whatever trillion dollars of debt that, the U.S. government's on the hook for, but at least it's measured. Under MMT, it wouldn't be measured, and your only real measurement of whether or not monetary policy is working would be probably inflation. And again, it comes down to the definition of inflation, but the idea that that money has no value and that we don't believe in it belies probably all three of our everyday lives in the sense that we all use money to pay our bills. You're sitting in a house that you bought with money. You're probably paying for your electricity with money the system is working based on this yeah. money, which you say has no value, but it clearly is providing value to all of us. And I agree that it's the belief that it has value throughout society that creates the value that is there. And if that belief dissipates and inflation in some ways is a measurement of, of that failing of belief that the money has value because inflation is often described as accelerating purchases to get rid of your dollars before the price gets more expensive next year. Um, and that's, what can create the feedback loops that create higher prices because everyone's accelerating purchases. But if you can't because of inventory supplies and those inventories come back, then eventually the faith will come back that your dollar is going to be worth more worth about the same in next year or the year after. And my personal view is when you look at the, the yield curve and you see that 30 years out, you can still borrow money for 30 years at sub 3%. It seems to me that the market is telling us and the, the and the world market, I mean, this is the, the most liquid and broadest market out there is the U.S. Treasury market is saying, we don't think inflationary inflation is a long-term problem. It's a short-term problem because if it wasn't, you wouldn't have a 10-year at 1.75.
Well, you have inflation month on month at 7%. Yeah. So I, I think you're reading different things and coming to different conclusions, but the overall overall market is saying inflation is not a problem. Yeah, we should come back to this topic of inflation again, because we haven't looked closely enough, I feel, at oil and its contribution, huge to inflation as far as I can see. Matt, I'm not a big fan. I'm a bit skeptical of MMT, but I, I have an interesting story about crypto from Chris Craddock. We were chatting about this yesterday. He was a former NYSE floor trader, and now he runs his own business. He has a rocket company based in part out of Florida. And he said, funny you brought this up, John, because he was talking with another rocket company startup who may be getting deeper into the business. And this businessman said he was considering raising money using a Bitcoin and Chris' response to him was, sure, if he can get it, but this stuff is thinner than the rice futures market with 10 times the volatility. I don't see how it's real money. I mean, this is a very sophisticated investor and businessman. So maybe it's good for speculators and gamblers, but there's something weird about Bitcoin. Well, yeah, there's a lot weird about it. Uh, and therefore, I would not uh, buy sell my house for Bitcoin if I were to sell my house. But I, I think Matt's point... Uh, you know, a little bit earlier is 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 one that's very perplexing. Why isn't the rate on the thirty-year bond going up? I mean, why isn't that happening? Because if people truly believed in inflation, the way I'm arguing they should, uh, it would um, it would demand that we get a much higher yield on the thirty-year. And unfortunately, the reason I think it's where it is is because the only solution to inflation, in my view, is recession. And in a recession, a 30-year bond might look pretty good. Um, but but I think I think Matt's point is the one that really has to be focused on. Why why is this 30-year uh, you know bond not giving you a reasonable yield? Um, and again, it's because I think this whole thing ends badly. I think this whole thing with inflation soaring ends badly. Uh, others think it ends well, um, and hopefully I'm wrong and they're right. Well, I'm saying that they, they they believe what Matt believes. They're, they're in Matt's camp, uh, which is okay. that, uh, this is a, a momentary uh, development caused by supply chain disruptions, uh, and therefore it will go away. And therefore, you know, committing to a 30-year bond at uh, 3%, we'll say, is reasonable. You know, my view is, you know, um, the inflation will peak, um, and it'll peak because uh, you know the Fed shrink starts shrinking its balance sheet, and there will be a recession, and that's why the thirty-year yield is at three percent. So, unfortunately, I, I'm very gloomy on this issue, um, and and hopefully the the rest of the world is correct and I'm wrong. Going back to the Bitcoin question, um, and by the way, I hope I'm right too, Dick. I hope you're wrong. <laughs> um, the 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 idea if you believe in any sort of inflation whatsoever is to get your assets. I mean, if you, if you start looking at the world as just assets versus liabilities instead of money versus non-money, I think Bitcoin starts making a lot more sense because you have your assets and you say, okay, how do I want to have my assets and preserve, preserve, preserve value, if not grow value, you put them in things that are scarce. Mm. Equities are often considered a scarce asset, except when you're buying 50 years of earnings in one one shot. That seems like a long time. When you're buying a 30-year bond at 3%, well, you know, maybe that's better than 0% or negative percent in keeping it in cash. But Bitcoin is by definition, if you believe, and I, I haven't ever heard anyone argue successfully that there's not going to be more than 21 million. If you believe there's only 21 million, then you know that there's scarcity. It's like they say with land, they ain't building more of it. And I, I you know, the the idea behind any asset that's scarce, which is the idea that it's a safer place than cash to keep my assets, then Bitcoin starts to make a little bit more sense. Now, the argument that Bitcoin is now the digital gold and and it's going to replace gold as the safe asset and the safe alternative, I think so far that's been belied by the statistics and that it seems like it's more correlated with uh, tech stocks than almost anything else. It's, it's kind of a leading indicator on tech stocks. And it's clearly not correlated to inflation in any way, shape, or form. But going back to gold, gold so far hasn't been correlated to inflation because gold should be, you know, if we're suffering for at least 7% inflation, then gold should be at least $2,000 going 
but it hasn't really moved since March of uh, 2020. So I, I, I think there's a lot of things going on that don't necessarily fit the narrative because if we were in a high inflationary environment, gold would be up. All we have is really real estate and, and rental cars and oil. You know, oil usually is negatively correlated with the dollar. This year, so far, has been positively correlated with the dollar. And that seems to be much more due to lack of inventory. And, and you know, I, I would argue that the U.S. government's cutting off its nose to spite its face by limiting drilling in America and cutting off destroying pipelines and, and making gold, uh, oil more scarce and more dear. And whenever you make something more dear, it becomes more expensive. Yeah. So it does feed in this whole circle, but the normal correlations between gold, oil, U.S. dollar, real estate, they, they just don't seem to be there. And, and cer- clearly Bitcoin hasn't replaced anything as a stable store of value, but that does not necessarily mean it won't be true in the future once, once the price is more, more stabilized. Does a certain class of investor or consumer, may call them old-fashioned or out of touch perhaps, who will not touch Bitcoin because it's not like money, you can stuff it in under your mattress. You know, it's something you can actually touch. Well, as Dick said, I, I, you can't touch your money. You can, he went into the bank and demanded his money, and they didn't have yeah. it. I mean, I went into the <laughs> bank and demanded my Bitcoin, and they don't have it either. I mean, right. It's all it's in fact, which brings me to one of my uh, last or final question, and we we can talk briefly after that. Are we headed towards a cashless society or are we literally there? I mean, the only place you use money, I guess, is tipping the bartender or going into your quick check to get your coffee or tips at the store, the hotel and so on. The Fed then- does have data on this. I mean, the 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 the, the number of transactions, I think, I think COVID rapidly accelerated. I mean, I'm pulling those numbers off my memory, but I believe going into COVID, some like 70% of the transactions in the United States, consumer retail transactions were done with um, credit card. And it's now, I think, closer to 75 to, sorry, 85 to 90%. Because if you remember at the beginning, when we thought COVID spread via germs, via touching, a lot of places started putting up signs saying cashless only, and it's accelerated. I, I, I think it's clear that we're in a cashless society. My parents go around they use cash as much as they can, and they used to write checks, but no one takes those anymore, and they're yeah. slowly converting, but I don't have cash. I, I think who's driving this also, uh, Matt and Dick, are the millennial generation, younger generation, because all my kids, it's all Venmo and all those other peer-to-peer. And, and the, you know, when you get in on them yourself, you say, my gosh, why do I want to be writing a check anymore, handing, handing out cash? This makes perfect sense. So, Dick, your thoughts on the cashless society were there or nearly there? Oh, we're nearly there because I think that uh, the banks have a tremendous incentive to move us to a cashless, checklist society because it lowers the cost of processing transactions. And since they make a great deal of money on processing transactions, they want and are doing everything possible to move us away from both cash and checks. And they're succeeding. Uh, as, as, as Matt just said, they succeeded enormously. And, you know, you, you know, it, it's not the millennials. It's just that people find it more convenient to operate, uh, you know, with uh, digitized uh, money, you know, transferred from one place to the other than having to go to the bank, having to write a check, having to, you know, carry cash. No, I think I, well, I, 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 I mentioned the millennials and younger gen. They're the early adopters, although you can't use that now. I mean, Venmo and all those peer-to-peer uh, platforms have been around now quite a few years. It's not exactly yeah, a new phenomena. Yeah, Zelle is a, is a big one. Um, but I mean, you know, the whole the whole thrust of, of technology in the payments area, which has been enormous over the last decade, has been to get rid of cash, to get rid of checks, and to do everything uh, electronically. And, you know, I think we will, I, 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 if we're not there already. Matt and Dick, this has been a really fascinating, interesting, a little provocative here and there, a bit of fun uh, episode. This has been episode two of Odeon Capital Conversations, uh, Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein. Where are we going the next couple of episodes? Any thoughts on what we might discuss? Any teasers here for listeners? Well, I, I, I want to pick up on this whole real estate situation uh, because I believe that we are creating uh, tens of thousands of slums around the United States as a result of uh, what's happening in the rental market um, there's too much money to be made uh, in buying a house and renting it 
than allowing someone else to buy a house and live in it. And as Matt said earlier, pay off a mortgage at a rate that was set, you know, uh, 20 years earlier. Uh, and, and I think that uh, I think it's going to be a massive crisis, which I think, you know, we, we need to discuss. So we're going to look at housing slums. That's one topic. Uh, any thoughts here, Matt? Yeah, I'd love to talk about the future of money and and what does the money look like in the future and and the implications if Dick is right or if I'm right on on what's backing it. You know, if if Dick is right, and I think ultimately he will be, I just don't think it's going to be anytime soon that the the faith in the US dollar is dissipated either through massive inflation or massive money printing or one causes the other what is there to replace you know restabilize the global financial system you know you look back at early 1900s and the US dollar was not really considered a top tier currency it wasn't probably even in the top 10 would be my guess you had the the pound you had a few other european currencies but it was it was not there and then you come out of world war 1 and world war 2 and by design, the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. And if if we go into a hyperinflation or a long period of inflationary environment, unlike 1970s, where you know it was kind of a new thing, not having the gold standard when Nixon completely closed it and and gold was allowed to float as a price again, we're, we don't have an excuse this time. And the question is, where does where does the world go? You know, is there another Bretton Woods? Is the are the crypto boys right that Bitcoin will become the global standard because it's the only one that is widely accepted? So I, I'd love to talk about the future of money, interest rates, all of the above, the exciting stuff. Yeah, this is going to be really exciting. And we will talk about all of those things and much more uh, starting on our next episode. Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein. Take care and we'll catch up next week. You were just listening to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. Your host was John Aiden Byrne. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.